The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. I wanted to take a moment and express my appreciation for Gil. Um, Gil was scheduled to speak this morning, but he's, uh, he's taking some time for himself today. And... Just this community and who's here and everything that IMC and IRC is, you know, is a testament to Gil and and how much he he gives us. Um, and I was uh, during the meditation. I was thinking about how uh, I first came to this community. Uh, about 25 years ago, um, I know. <laughs> Where did the years go? And uh, Gil was teaching in Palo Alto at the Quaker Friends Center. Some of you may remember, yeah. And and um, I had just graduated. From, uh, from Stanford, from college, and was working. And a colleague said to me, um, I didn't know her very well. And, you know, I was in my early 20s, and she, you know, s- seemed much older. She was probably like 27 or something. <laughs> but, you know, was married and stuff. And she said, you know, Max, oh, she was pregnant at the time as well. And she said, Max, I go to these talks on Monday nights. And for some, I just think you would, I think you would like them. And you want to, you want to go, you know, just talk tonight or something. And I said, okay, you know, and it was like, you know, it's a meditation and a talk. And, and I remember parking in the neighborhood. It was, um, off of Middlefield, you know, near the kind of that area near 101. And I was working, a little bit farther down one-on-one in one of the office parks in Bayshore. Um, and so it was really close. And I remember parking in this very quiet neighborhood. It was, it was so, you know, dark and quiet. And I wasn't familiar with it. So it's kind of, you know, your senses are a little bit heightened because I don't know. I don't know this place. And so I parked and then walked in. And in my memory, it was a long room and people were sitting kind of facing each other on the room. And, and then there was a teacher kind of at the, the end of the room. I remember sitting down and waiting and waiting <laughs> and waiting. <laughs> And finally, I was like, all right. <laughs> okay, I think I get it. And everyone just kind of closed their eyes. And, and you know, it's like that moment where something lets go. And it's like, you know, waiting for something to happen, waiting for some teaching. Then you realize, this is it. This is it. And something lets go. And it's like, okay, I can be here. I can, I can wait. I can just sit and wait. 
and and then Gil started to you know give you know some, ring the bell and and he gave a talk and what I was struck by was um, how ordinary he was you know he was so plain spoken and so ordinary there was no artifice there was no um, you know, I'd come from the business world and there's a lot of ego, there's a lot of, you know, presentations and big special effects and I'm going to sell you something. And, and, um, and this was just so, so, so ordinary, but, but his words went right into my heart, you know, and because the truth you know, when we hear the truth, there's something, something resonates in us. And, and I thought to myself about Gil, this is someone I can trust. And so I started kind of just going regularly or week after week, and he would teach on Mondays and Thursdays, and then on Sunday mornings in Portola Valley, and being, you know, I was 21 and, you know, didn't have a lot going on, basically. So, you know, I, I, could, I had time to, to go to teachings and talks. And, um, and I didn't really know why I was going, you know. And someone would say, well, well, why do you meditate? Or what do you, I said, I don't know, you know. I didn't, I didn't think I had any particular skill at it. It wasn't like, oh, I'm really good at this. I should be doing this. Um, it was more like just to be, just to stop for a few moments and, and, and be willing to be with this mind, this heart, this body. It was such an unusual thing. And, and this was, you know, this was before iPhones and uh, yeah, all, the, all the ways that we can so easily soothe ourselves and distract ourselves and check out. And of course, you know, in the 90s, you had to open the fridge or, you know, do something, do something to um, get distracted. And, but what I felt was that on the days that I could get myself to sit down and meditate for a few moments, it was like things shifted one millimeter, but that made all the difference, you know, in, in my day, in my perspective, in the, the capacity that I felt to be in my life. And... Um, yeah, so, and I sometimes have the image of a moment of practice or a day of practice as like, it's so like one, one period of meditation or one period of just being still and being quiet it's like, it's so insubstantial. It's like one of these, it's a little bit of a dated image, but one of these pages of a phone book, 
you remember phone books? <laughs> you know, it's like so thin. It's so insubstantial. Nothing. But day after day, year after year, you know, it becomes something. It becomes something substantial. And so, you know, in meditation, the perfect can be the enemy of the good. And it's like, well, well, you know, I can, well, if I don't have 40 minutes to sit, you know, what's the point? Or if I don't, you know, if I can't, it's like, no, it's like any moment, any moment we can stop and wake up and open up to our life and appreciate this moment, um, whatever it's offering to us. Um, this is important. This, this, uh, this, this grows. This, you know, we stay connected to something that's alive. Um, and you know, I feel the poignancy of um, if you've been practicing or just been alive over some years. It's like the poignancy of of time passing. Um, I have this image of myself, maybe because I started practicing being relatively young, of being kind of young, you know. And um, these these days, I I do some work with university students and 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 young people in their early twenties and. It's like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'll say, well, you know, when I did that in 95 and they're like, Max, I, I was born 10 years after 95. What? <laughs> um, and, you know, so when we, when we say insight meditation, what is the insight? What is the insight in insight meditation? And uh, maybe, you know, different teachers would say different things, but uh, what I would say is, and I think there's good, there's good support for this in our tradition, is that the primary insight is that things change. You know, things are changing. Everything is changing. And so... You know, in some ways, it's the most obvious sort of cliched thing is that everything is changing. Um, But to really see that, to really feel that, to really take in the magnitude of this. And, you know, every, everything changes maybe a little more, um, tender way of saying it or pointed way of saying it or something is everyone, everyone changes. Everyone dies. This is the insight. This is the insight, insight meditation. And, and, and this paradox that the more quiet we are, the more still we are, the more we can perceive change. It's in direct proportion to how, how still we are that we can perceive change. You know, such, 
just to, just to notice this. Sometimes things happen in life that stop our minds, right? We have to stop. We have to take notice. You know, it, something interrupts our picture of who we think we are or what we think life is. Um, one of my teachers has, has, has said this line that, that has always stuck with me, but it's something like, reality, what was it? reality appears in the form of the unexpected. Reality appears in the form of the unexpected. You know, of course we have our expectations. Of course we have, and, and often our expectations are things are going to kind of keep going the way they've been going, yeah. right? You know, this continuity, and there is continuity. But um, also things change. And... And sometimes it's that interruption or that disruption that makes us stop. It could be, you know, the change of a relationship. It could be uh, the ending of some, you know, a career or a job. Or um, it could be, you know, some some medical event or some life event that... um, you know, it sort of forces us to stop. And so in practice, we're practicing how to stop, how to stop and how to be present and, and, and open to the ways, large and small, that things change. Um, and and I think one of the amazing um, truths that, that Buddhism, that Dharma points to is that the more we open to impermanence, the more we open to this truth and the more we are willing to be with it and breathe with it and to whatever extent we can in the moment, accept it. The more we can do this, actually, the happier we'll be. The more, the more peace is available to us when we're not, we're not resisting, we're not fighting, we're not struggling with the way things are. You know, and so it's this. This is the pivot point of Buddhism. Um, how can I al- align myself with the way things are? You know, and this is what brings freedom. This is what brings happiness. And each moment gives us this opportunity. Each moment is a request to um, let this in. So I feel like, um, for me, one of the great uh, teachings of Gill that I, um, you know, to, to whatever extent I've been able to take in and, 
and metabolize and, and chew on and work with and is how to not be in conflict. How to not be in conflict. How to not be in conflict with myself. How to not be in conflict with life. How to not be in conflict with um, you know, the way things are. And You know, and if we think of our practice as the practice of non-conflict, then, then it opens up. Then we know immediately how to practice. We know immediately what to do. And that is to sense into where is there conflict? Where is there struggle? Where is there tension? And so when we meditate, just to notice in the body, where is the contraction? Where is the sense of tension? Often the, the physical manifestations of struggle are a great, a great doorway, a great portal to sense into this. Can I, can I open to this body however it is, however it happens to be right now. And not in a way that needs to fix and change and improve, but just to be with, to hold, hold the tension, to hold the tightness. And then where is the, uh, where is the mental tightness? Where is the struggle, the sense of, this is not this is not it. (laughs) This is not what I'm here for. Um, And so this has been a great guiding light for me, you know, and maybe we could think that, well, isn't that going to be a real bummer to just be looking for conflict and looking for struggle and looking for tension and looking for unease or anxiety, or, but actually, you know, it's there anyway. So we either see it or we don't see it. And if we don't see it, it controls us, right? If I don't see my anger, if I don't see my fear, then I act from it. You know, you probably, usually for me, you know, ways that are not that skillful. And, but if I see it, if I can feel it, if I can bring it in, acknowledge it, welcome it, meet it with some care and tenderness, then it's like I'm not in conflict anymore. It's not like there's this fear and I don't like it, it shouldn't be here, and I'm going to try to ignore it, or the shame, or this anger. And I'm going to kind of, you know, I'm not in conflict, I'm opening to it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to learn from it. Um, and maybe that which we don't like the most about ourselves, that's which we're the most ashamed of, we're the most fearful of, um, that's our treasure. You know, that is 
what this practice is asking us to open to and breathe with and understand on a level that we haven't been able to understand before. And so it's like the dragon. You know, this is the, this is the year of the dragon, right? And in Buddhism, the dragon is, um, well, the dragon is the protector of the Dharma. The dragon is the protector of the Dharma. And the dragon is a symbol of transformation. The dragon is a symbol of wisdom, right? Is a symbol of knowledge that's hidden. So what's hidden? What's the hidden knowledge, the hidden treasure that's in us um, that maybe we haven't we haven't um, fully appreciated appreciated the the power and the potential. Um, Some years ago, Gil put together a book that probably, I'm sure it's, it's in the library of um, the sort of short teachings and, and these beautiful photographs of Suzuki Roshi, who was the founding teacher of San Francisco Zen Center. And Suzuki Roshi... Um, his Dharma name was um, well, it was something dragon. <laughs> Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> Fill in the blank dragon. It's not white dragon because Suzuki Roshi's teacher, Mel Sojun Mel Weitzman, who's my teacher and Gil's teacher, was Sojun Hakuryu, which was white dragon. And so Suzuki wrote, oh. It might be pure dragon, but I'll look it up. I'll let you know. But the, the title of the book that, you know, that Gil put together was called, Why Did the Dragon Come to the West? You know? And it was about, you know, it was in Suzuki Roshi who came from Japan to the U.S. in the the late 1950s, you know, and and he, um, you know, his coming to the U.S. and to California in particular, it was like. This, the, the timing was so incredible because there was the beat generation who were interested in Eastern things and meditation and states of consciousness. And then there was the, you know, the hippies and the, you know, and the, and the, and drugs and psychedelics and all, you know, and, and all these things coming together. And people remarked how, um, you know, just, amazing and kind of bizarre that all these, you know, somewhat wild looking, unwashed hippies would show up at five in the morning 
to meditate with this tiny little bald Japanese man wearing robes, you know, and who had a kind of strictness. If you know Japanese Zen, there's, there's quite a strong aesthetic and a strong form to the practice. So it's not like, oh, we just come in and do whatever we want and, you know, and hey, and tune in and check out. You know, it's like, no, you come in and you stand a certain way and you bow a certain way and there's bells and there's, and it's a formal practice. So to see these kind of wild looking young people surrender to this very formal looking practice, but they understood that in a way that in, in the kind of form, we can find our freedom, right? You know, form and freedom are two sides of the same thing. And, and then so Suzuki Roshi was this dragon who was, you know, in a way, this strict Japanese Zen master. But, but he was so open and his mind and his heart were so open to the sincerity of these Americans who were suffering, who were questioning, who were seekers. And so they met, they met each other in a, in a really deep way. And then there came a time when, you know, the, the, so Suzuki Roshi was teaching in, uh, at Sokoji, which is still there, you know, on Bush, Bush Street in San Francisco. And it's, you know, it's the Japanese congregation. And there came a time when the older Japanese community was sort of like, all right, you know, what gives? <laughs> you got all these, these, all these kind of crazy people coming in and meditating and they're kind of taking over our space. And um, we kind of brought you over here to be the priest for us. <laughs> and you're doing this stuff, you know, and, you know, and they basically, you know, and not that it was, you know, I, I think there were some people in, in the community who were also, you know, interested in, in this kind of form of meditation and zazen. But there was this split. And so he was Suzuki Roshan, Suzuki Roshi, the dragon, was confronted and said, it's either us or them. You know, you have to choose. And so as the story goes, the first way that the dragon dealt with his confrontation is the way I think we all like to deal with confrontation. He avoided them. <laughs> so he, he went into hiding. <laughs> you couldn't find him. You know, you know, wouldn't open the door. And then finally, you know, they said, you have to make a decision. And he said, um, I go with the people who sit sasen. I go with the people who meditate. You know, and um, anyway, and so this lineage, you know, even though it's it's a Japanese Zen lineage, it's also part of our lineage through Gil. And um, I'm sure many of you know that Gil came to practice through 
um, through Zen, you know, and 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 is a you know very respected figure in the Zen Buddhist community. You know, one of the elders on the elders council at the San Francisco Zen Center. You know, um, and I feel the influence of of Zen practice very much in our practice here, even though we don't follow so much of the outward Zen forms, I think there's something in Zen that is, um, the immediacy of Zen and the kind of radical openness uh, and this 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 pointing to accepting all of who we are and all of what this moment is is giving us right here right now this is it you know um, I think insight practice and vipassana is so wonderful um, and it has a certain kind of um, you know there's a lot of different teachings and techniques and and lists. If you've been around here for a while, you know there's many lists. Twelve this, the ten this, the four this, the eight this. It's great. Um, But, you know, um, you know, one of the things I get from, from Zen and from Gil is that it comes down to meeting the dragon. Meeting the dragon in us, who is us, and I, you know, I, uh, now we'll begin the talk. Um, (laughs) That was all of introduction. You know, the best children's books are, are not really just for children. And, you know, I think of The Giving Tree, Shel Silverstein, you know, so so many great books that when I look at them and, you know, it's like, oh my God, this is so deep and this can be understood on so many levels. Well, um, I recently got introduced to this book, which is uh, by Jack Kent. There's no such thing as a dragon. Uh, I don't know if you if you know this, but I mean, it's really good. It's so good. I'm not going to read it all, but Billy Bixby was rather surprised when he woke up one morning and found a dragon in his room. It was a small dragon about the size of a kitten, and you know, so little Billy discovers there's a dragon in his room. And so he goes downstairs and he tells his mother, Mama, there's a dragon in my room. And she said, Billy, don't be silly. There's no such thing as a dragon. It's like, okay. And he goes back up to his room and he has this instinct to sort of pet the dragon, to touch the dragon, to to meet the dragon, but he stops himself, you know? You know, when your mother tells you that what you're seeing doesn't exist, well, he trusts his mother, he loves his mother, right? 
you know, so he ignores the dragon and against his better instincts. And then, you know, an interesting thing happens. The more he tries to ignore the dragon, the dragon grows and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so next we find that Billy's downstairs having breakfast. The dragon is under the table. So big, he's like the table is like kind of, you know, he's lifting the table up. The dragon eats all his breakfast. (laughs) Dragons like pancakes, apparently. Billy's mother is still, can't see the dragon. She says, Billy, he said, Mama, the dragon ate all my Billy, there's no such thing as a dragon. The next we see um, the dragon is, gets bigger and takes up the size of the whole living room. And the mom is trying to vacuum around the dragon. Still doesn't see the dragon. Finally, the dragon gets so big that he lifts up the house. <laughs> walks away with the house. The father, who's also been insisting that there's no such thing as a dragon, comes home from work. Where's my family? Where's my house? One of the neighbors said, I think I saw a dragon. Or no, I, I, I think I saw the, the, the house. I, I think I saw your house across town. Something. So the father drives around, finds, you know, is so worried you know, to find his family. Uh, finally, sees the house, sees the, you know. You know, here's, here's the dragon, you know. <laughs> Mr. Bixby got in his car and went looking for the house. He studied all the houses as he drove along. Finally, he saw one that looked familiar. Billy and Mrs. Bixby were waving from an upstairs window. You know. And um, Mr. Bixby climbed over the dragon's head onto the porch roof and through the upstairs window. So the father asked, how did this happen? And little Billy says, it was the dragon. There's no such thing, the mother starts to say. Finally, Billy finds his voice, and to his parents he says, There is a dragon, Billy insisted, a very big dragon. And finally, Billy patted the dragon on its head. You know, so he acknowledged the dragon. The dragon wagged its tail happily. Then even faster than it had grown, the dragon started getting smaller. Soon it was kitten size again. So you know. I don't mind dragons this size, said mother.
parents ask, why did it have to grow so big? I'm not sure, said Billy, but I think it just wanted to be noticed. You see dragons sitting on on their lap. So... I think when we're not in conflict, when we're not in conflict with our dragons, we're not, that means we're not denying them, we're not ignoring them, we're not pretending, you know, we're, we're, we're meeting them, we're, we're taking care of them, we're we're acknowledging what's true for us, and we're we're not letting other people, um, you know, confuse us, and um, um, we're not letting other people define who we are or for what we know is true. Um, then not only are we not in conflict with uh, the dragon? Uh, we become the dragon. So, so, and we become these uh, protectors of the Dharma and protectors of what's true and protectors uh, for ourselves and for others. So, uh, it's a pleasure for me to be in the company of this uh, great assembly of dragons. So, thank you very much. And I think we have a few, you know, we have a few minutes. If anyone has a comment or a question, um, yeah, feel free to go if you have to go, and we'll just end in a couple minutes. But um, yeah, would love to love to hear from you. Hi, uh, I guess Max, right? Max, yes. Okay, we kind of figured through your story, but since you're substituting Gil, we don't really know your name. It's okay. So at the beginning, you said nothing to gain and nothing to lose. So you're kind of pretending to be like this because obviously we gained experience and we lost, I guess you can say, time till we die. So there's obviously two things like right off the top of my head. But so we pretend that we're like nothing to lose. Or how does it work? So in Buddhism, like in life, there's this great principle. You fake it till you make it. <laughs> you know, and so, um, of course, there are things to gain. And of course, there are things to lose. And at the same time, you know, in, in, a, in the widest possible way of looking, maybe we can say that um, because everything is already exactly the way it is, because everything is already 
preaching the Dharma. Everything is already expressing what's true. Um, nothing can be lost, you know. This is like the realm of transformation. Things are just changing, moment by moment by moment. Things are changing. And so, from the perspective of I'm a person who's bound in time and space, yeah, I have a lot to lose and I have a lot to gain. And from the perspective of everything is just what it is, you know, it's just change. There's just this flow of experience. And in Buddhism, it's not that one perspective is right and the other one is wrong. It's that we're usually sort of stuck in one perspective. And so this is like about loosening what's usually very fixed view. And can I, can I open to this other perspective? And can I have the freedom to move between these perspectives? So, um, you know, it's like we're going to leave here and just because everything is changing moment by moment, don't just take any random pair of shoes, right? (laughs) Take your own shoes. (laughs) Um, We need to have that, you know, that's the perspective of the self. Mm. And we need that. And then, but can we also open to, there's more, there's more to life than just that, that limited perspective. Mm. Okay, thank you. I'm Jim. This life is kind of programmed to be just more or less conflicted and you pick up the news in the morning in you know, Times, Wall Street Journal, whatever it happens to be, your favorite rag, and uh, all you get is essentially things that point to conflicts. Mm-hmm. And the question I have is how do you get yourself or create the capacity in yourself to be able to uh, maintain your, rather maintain your um, heading without having to be in in a sense of the um, the Dharma without being you know afflicted by or jerked around by all these incredible things that are coming at you every moment yeah, yeah no, i I appreciate the question and it's i think you know in, in a way it's it's i think why the Buddha talked about this practice as going against the stream. You know, we're going against the stream of um, so much conditioning and so much um, history and, and karma of, of conflict. And in the way, conflict is kind of part of our, you know, you don't have to be a Freudian or something to know that, you know, we're, Conflict is kind of part of how human beings are constructed, you know, and, and how we build the self. And so um, I think maybe what I'll say now is just that it, just that question, you know, and just that impulse to stop and to breathe and to be and to open and to be willing to meet what's in conflict for ourselves in a respectful way, in a curious way, um, 
it has to start this way. It has to start this way. And some days we'll have more capacity to do it than other days. But um, to, to just have that sense that this, is, this needs to be seen, this needs to be met, these dragons in me need to be acknowledged. You know, this is where it starts. And then moment by moment, you know, it's a, it's a process. And so, thank you. Thank you, everyone.